Welcome back to the Insurance versus History podcast. I'm Meredith Brasher, your writer and host, and I'm excited to dive into more episodes where I examine how insurance has changed history, and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it really, really tried. I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years, I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. Do you want to know how history happened? Insurance can help. I'm starting this episode with a warning. This might be my most controversial episode ever. I'm talking about the NRA, and specifically how the NRA's actions affected the insurance industry. This topic was one of the first things I wanted to talk about when I started the podcast, and because I knew this topic would be controversial, though it's not my intention to be controversial here, it just seems like talking about the NRA at all is controversial. It's taken me more than a year to actually do an episode on this. I may end up making everyone mad, which isn't my intention. So here's my caveat ahead of time. The point of my investigation wasn't to convince people of my personal views on firearms. I have feelings about guns. Everybody in the U.S. does. You should know that in the past I lived in another country where guns are pretty much illegal and crime rate is also very low, and that does affect my feelings about firearms. But I also grew up in a state in the U.S. where a lot of people have guns and are passionate about guns, and I have relatives who have served in the U.S. military and as police officers. But as regards to the NRA specifically, there were a couple of questions I wanted to try and answer. First, how did the NRA affect the insurance industry? Second, how could the current U.S. discussion on firearms, which is to say a discussion that's very disjointed and contentious, in part because of the NRA, how does that affect the insurance industry going forward? First, a word about terminology. The people on the side of regulating firearms have their preferred words to use, and the people who are on the side of not regulating firearms have their own words. All the words have issues, so it's hard to know what to use. Is it gun control or gun safety or gun rights or whatever? And all the terms are a problem for somebody. I'll try to be fair, but there are no words people agree on, and I've done my best. Again, I'm not weighing in on this issue in this episode, just to be clear. So if you like guns or you don't like guns, if you have strong feelings about the NRA either way, I'd encourage you to keep listening and just please give me some grace as I try to navigate this fairly. You might learn something about the history of guns and gun legislation in the United States, and you will definitely leave with a few questions to ponder about insurance. This episode is a story about how a nonprofit organization became one of the most important players in U.S. politics and how that organization's actions changed the insurance industry and are still changing it today. And this is a story about how the public conveniently forgets who pays the bills when things go wrong, how politicians want to shift the responsibility for legislation onto private industry, and what that might mean as a result. I can't start this episode without some history. So let's do a history of the NRA, an organization that has changed a lot over time. 
Initially, the NRA started just after the Civil War as the result of two interconnected things. First, some number of Northern soldiers were returning home with their service rifles, which they were allowed to buy after the war. This meant a lot of people now had guns in their homes who had previously never had a weapon. Contrary to popular belief, even in the olden days, most people didn't own a firearm. They were expensive, and unless you lived in a place where you could hunt for food, there really wasn't any need. Secondly, the two men who founded the NRA, William Church and George Wingate, both Civil War veterans themselves, had noticed something they found disturbing during their time in the Union Army. Most of the men fighting for the North were terrible shots. If you've ever had the opportunity to shoot one of these Civil War area style muskets or rifles, my understanding is they can be very challenging to use. Church and Wingate believed that part of the reason the Civil War went on for so long was that the Northern soldiers had inadequate training and marksmanship, whereas the Confederate soldiers were more skilled. This was a heck of an assumption on their part, but Church and Wingate decided to create a marksmanship club to promote the accurate use of a firearm, and the NRA, as it became known, was born in 1871. The NRA elected its first president, the Civil War General Ambrose Burnside, that year. If you know anything about the Civil War and General Burnside, you might get a chuckle out of this. Burnside was a terrible leader, and he knew it. I'm not sure if that makes it better or worse, but for someone who had a pretty bad track record of winning battles, it didn't seem to affect his career after the war. He'd been governor of Rhode Island for a few years and then became a senator. For many years afterward, the NRA remained a nonprofit organization focused on recreational hunting and firearms training. They weren't political at all. You might be surprised to know that while legislation restricting gun ownership is a hot-button issue today, it wasn't always that way. That's primarily due to the NRA and their current platform and goals, but it's useful to step back in time and just do a quick overview of gun control in the U.S. before the 1970s, when the NRA started on the course they are still on today. Many of these laws I'm going to quickly go over were supported by the NRA, something that seems unthinkable now. In 1934, Congress passed the National Firearms Act, which was a direct response to the rise of Prohibition-era gangsters like Al Capone and the fact that these gangs were operating on an interstate level. The interstate operation of these gangs is part of what made them so unique in regards to gangs historically in the U.S. Most people think that this law made owning a machine gun illegal, and I did too, but that's not entirely true. The law instituted a tax of $200 each on machine guns and sawed-off shotguns, and the owners of these weapons had to register them with the government and be fingerprinted. If they didn't comply, they were subject to significant jail time. But since the tax itself was so high, $200 in 1934 is like $5,000 today, this fee effectively removed those weapons from circulation. Four years later, another law was passed, the Federal Firearms Act of 1938, which required gun dealers, dealers of any kind of gun, not just machine guns and sawed-off shotguns, to be licensed and keep proper records. The law also halted the sale of guns to felons, which was not illegal before that. Both the 1934 and 1938 laws were strongly supported by the NRA. In fact, the 1938 legislation was partially based on a model gun control act written by the head of the NRA at the time. Not much changed for people who owned, manufactured, or sold guns in the intervening years until the late 1960s. 
This was partly a reaction to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy and then Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, but that wasn't the only reason. For example, the Black Panthers were a group of Black men and women who, when faced with what was pretty racist policing and police brutality, started walking their neighborhoods in the 1960s to watch interactions between citizens and the police, armed with words and sometimes with weapons. Now, mind you, it's important to note that at this time, open carry of firearms was not illegal in California. It wasn't illegal in most places. It just wasn't something that people did as a rule. It was more a societal prohibition than a legal one. Most likely as a result of these actions by the Black Panthers, the California state government put forth a bill called the Mulford Law, which would prohibit the open carry of weapons in the state. When 30 members of the Black Panthers entered the California State House peacefully in 1967, openly carrying firearms in protest of the proposed law, the result was not unexpected. The law passed and open carry was prohibited, and you could get five years in jail for breaking the law. This was also a law that the NRA openly supported. A year later, Congress passed the Federal Gun Control Act and a related bill called the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act. While many members of Congress cited the recent deaths of Martin Luther King and John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy as their reason to vote for these laws, most historians, even some who lean pretty far right, have come to believe that the law was at least in part a backlash against the Black Panthers and other Black militant groups. Practically, these laws mandated the following federal-level changes, an expansion of federal licensing laws, a ban on sales to a larger list of people than just felons, the new list included people they defined as mentally ill or suffering from substance addiction, as well as minors. There was an expansion of licensing requirements. The mail-order purchase of guns was mostly shut down, except for antiques, and U.S. manufactured guns needed to be marked with a serial number. The older laws hadn't been overturned. They were still in place. And to be honest, this law was pretty modest in scope. Again, you have to know what's coming the NRA supported this law. However, by the late 1970s, the NRA had begun openly advocating for the overturning of the Federal Gun Control Act, and the organization had transformed into a group primarily focused on self-defense rather than hunting. What happened? It probably started with the establishment of the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Firearms, and Tobacco, in 1972, Mind you, most members of the NRA and certainly the heads of the board of directors at the organization probably didn't have an issue with it. But some people within the NRA had very strong feelings about the ATF and then about gun legislation in general. Within this smaller group of people, there was a feeling that the government had overstepped its bounds. And in May 1977, at the NRA's annual meeting, they took charge. Gun historians call it the Revolt of Cincinnati. The entire board of the NRA was voted out and a new group of men, and of course they were all men though, but honestly that would change, were put in place. It's important to note here that the most important person at the NRA is not usually the president of the NRA. That's often a figurehead. The real power is usually the executive vice president. In 1977, that person became Harlan Carter. Carter had very strong feelings about the direction he wanted the NRA to go in, and that direction was pointed right at Washington. From that point on, the NRA's focus did a 180. Again, 
before this change, they weren't much of a political operation. The NRA resolved to oppose all gun legislation that limited gun ownership and to try to overturn existing laws. After Ronald Reagan was elected in 1981, he was seen as a very strong supporter of the NRA, the NRA went on a marketing blitz to increase their membership roles to more than 3 million and increase their power in Washington. This is the first moment that the NRA changes from a sleepy nonprofit to a lobbying behemoth, but it would take two pieces of gun legislation in 1994 to galvanize the NRA's lobbying power into what it is today. Those two bills were the Brady Bill and the Federal Assault Weapons Ban. The Brady Bill was in response to the shooting of President Reagan in 1981 and mandated that gun buyers undergo a federal background check and a five-day waiting period. The Federal Assault Weapons Ban was a response to several U.S. mass shootings and attempted to limit some types of firearms and ammunition, with modest success. These two bills coincided with a recent change of leadership at the NRA. A few years earlier, in 1991, Wayne LaPierre, a man who, as far as I can tell and from what I've read, does not even own a gun, became the NRA's executive vice president. After the passing of the Brady Bill and the federal assault weapons ban, the NRA's mission evolved into what it is today. For the last 20 years, the NRA's goal seems to be to actively overturn or prevent any type of restriction or oversight related to the gun industry. They lobby and help write legislation they support. Their goal, according to one firearm manufacturing executive, was to, quote, make gun culture sacred, unquote, with Wayne LaPierre as the very visual face of the NRA. If you don't like Wayne LaPierre, and I will say that personally, I don't like him, I can honestly say that no one hates Wayne LaPierre like a journalist named Tim Mack hates Wayne LaPierre. Mac is a correspondent for NPR, and he wrote a book called Misfire about LaPierre and the NRA in 2021, and it might be one of the funniest things I read that year. Here's just a very short quote, slightly edited. Quote, Originally a Democrat, Wayne is a clumsy, meek, spastic man with a weak handshake, those that know him personally say. When he first started at the NRA, he was known for his wrinkled suits and detached gaze. Yet he was repeatedly promoted, despite displaying no sense of professional ambition or charisma, unquote. Don't get me wrong. There is some good reporting in this book, especially on where the money that the NRA takes in goes. But Mac pulls no punches and has no issue showing his feelings, though most of his observations are backed up by secondary corroboration. And the description of LaPierre's wedding? Comedy gold. Anyway, while I could get into all the different things the NRA has done since the late 1970s to turn back and prevent any legislation about firearms in the United States, I said I wasn't here to put forth my personal feelings on guns, and I meant that. I don't have a problem putting forth my feelings on the NRA because I fervently believe that the NRA and guns are not the same thing. Only about 10% of gun owners in the U.S. are NRA members, by the way. You might find that surprising. Some non-members might agree with what the NRA says, but a lot of them don't agree with all of it, or even any of it. Just saying. But, let's get to the insurance side of things. The way I see it, there are two things worth reviewing. The 2005 Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, 
and the current push within a certain subset of pundits, professors, economists, legislators, and activists who suggests that the insurance industry should take on the burden of regulating firearms. Should be fun. If you're a general liability underwriter, you probably already know this. But if you're not, maybe you heard about it on the news in passing. Since 2005, you basically cannot sue a gun manufacturer for product liability. Okay, well, it's a little more complicated than that. And it's worth reading out some of the actual text of the law because all the websites I looked at didn't do a very good job of explaining it correctly. Summed up, this law, quote, prohibits a qualified civil liability action from being brought in any state or federal court against a manufacturer or seller of a firearm, ammunition, or a component of a firearm for damages resulting from the criminal or unlawful misuse of a firearm, unquote. Now, mind you, they can be sued if the gun malfunctions or if there is obvious criminal misconduct on the part of the manufacturer or dealer. For example, if they knew a gun was being sold to a criminal. But the law sets a high bar for this. This law is unique in that there are no other industries that have this level of product immunity available. The Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, or the PLCAA, came out of a series of lawsuits against gun companies in the late 1980s and 1990s as a result of the increase in crime in that period, which often involved firearms. Several major cities like Chicago, Miami, and New Orleans sued gun manufacturers for damages, alleging that the manufacturers knew about safety devices and measures that could have improved their products and made them safer for the public. Gun manufacturers continued to sell their products to gun dealers, who knew they were selling those guns to criminals. In 1999, after the Columbine shooting, the Clinton administration and the head of housing and urban development, at that time Andrew Cuomo, joined the lawsuit. If you also remember my earlier episode on Elliot Spitzer, you might recall that one of the industries he targeted before he went after the insurance industry was the gun manufacturing industry. Spitzer was elected New York Attorney General in 1998, and in late 1999, he also targeted the firearms industry. His office specifically went after a manufacturer named Smith & Wesson. Smith & Wesson at the time was responsible for about 20% of all guns manufactured in the United States. Spitzer, who, as we know, was determined to change industries with his lawsuits, worked with Connecticut Attorney General Richard Blumenthal and Andrew Cuomo at HUD to negotiate a deal with Smith & Wesson. In return, Spitzer and the others would drop their lawsuits and the federal government would exempt Smith & Wesson from further lawsuits against the gun industry. Smith & Wesson agreed to add mandatory trigger locks to all their guns going forward and to implement strict limits on marketing and how their guns were displayed in public. The NRA and people in the gun industry weren't happy with this settlement. They felt like Smith & Wesson had gone behind their backs and given in. In retaliation, encouraged by the NRA, gun dealers started to boycott Smith & Wesson. Smith & Wesson struggled financially as a result and was in such financial distress by early 2001 that it was sold to an investment group for a measly $15 million. This was perhaps $100 million less than it was valued 10 years prior. Smith & Wesson wasn't the only company to settle in this time. 
Bushmaster settled with victims for several million after the D.C. sniper incidents in 2004, and it was starting to look like these suits could get very expensive for the insurance industry. Keep in mind that many gun manufacturing companies are not very large. The fact that Smith & Wesson, a name most of us know, was only valued at about $115 million in the late 1980s should give you a sense of the size of these companies. They certainly weren't the size of the tobacco or asbestos companies, for example. The NRA was, of course, also very concerned. They had been quietly lobbying individual states to pass legislation to prevent lawsuits against gun manufacturers. Something like 34 states had passed legislation in the late 1990s and early 2000s to provide immunity from lawsuits for gun manufacturers. And then, after 9-11, gun sales soared. Bush was re-elected, and the NRA found itself in a real position of power. They used that power to help push the PLCAA through Congress. All of a sudden, these manufacturers were insulated from lawsuits, which changed things. A lot. So, what happened? Wall Street got very interested in gun manufacturers and dealers. Without the risk of expensive lawsuits, all of a sudden money started pouring into the industry. When more money comes into a company, they use it to do things like build out product lines, upgrade factories, and come up with new R&D to sell new stuff. It encouraged the industry to grow significantly, and it did, and part of that was also the NRA's marketing, which was often inflammatory about certain religious and ethnic groups post-9-11, and the NRA had no qualms about invoking the military and patriotism and all that other stuff, and all that stuff sold guns. And for insurance, well, it meant that the industry wouldn't be on the hook for liability settlements in most cases. Insurance called that a win for the industry. So, as a result, insurance for firearm manufacturers got cheap. Very, very cheap. On the one hand, most of the manufacturers still were considered ENS, excess and surplus risks, but the insurance premiums were a bargain especially compared to the late 1990s. Some insurers excluded product liability from their policies, which the gun manufacturers would accept for cheaper prices because they believed that the PLCAA would protect them from product liability lawsuits. Some insurance companies didn't exclude product liability, but added an exclusion for mass torts. I've seen some variations of this exclusion, some of which are pretty questionable. I actually think all of them are questionable, and as far as I was able to research, I couldn't find anything where the courts had weighed in on the legality of a mass tort exclusion, or the wording of a mass tort exclusion. And there probably were some policies that just didn't exclude anything, just relying on the law to protect them. Did we as an industry wait to see if the law would hold up in court? Not really. I mean, the courts were indeed aggressive in tossing out lawsuits that fell under the immunity of this law. There were only a handful of lawsuits that even went very far. And in all cases, the courts found that immunity applied. But I think it's unrealistic for anyone to believe that this law would stand forever. Sure, it's unlikely that Congress, given the still strong hold the NRA has on politics today, would rescind the law, but inroads into the law were inevitable. You just needed the right case and the right argument. The law wasn't foolproof. There were some exceptions if you could figure out how to get around them. 
Like, for example, if you could prove unlawful conduct on the part of a manufacturer or dealer, or if you could prove they broke a law regarding the marketing or sale of firearms. Let's face it, you had all these lawyers who were successful in going after other large industries like tobacco or asbestos. And part of that success wasn't just the financial aspect of the settlement. It was that those lawyers were able to use the lawsuits to force discovery, to get access to internal paperwork from those manufacturers, which in the case of tobacco and asbestos, gave lawyers further inroads. Because those internal documents showed that both industries had knowingly manufactured dangerous products that could have been made safer, but that the industries deliberately chose not to make them safer. What could be in the documentation of these various gun manufacturers about these types of issues? Lawyers wanted to know. And then, of course, the more mass shooting events that happened in the U.S. and the more horrific those events were, the more lawsuits that would aggressively challenge the law. I have to believe that someone in the insurance industry was saying this, but speaking as someone who underwrote liability for many years, if they were, that wasn't being passed down to those of us on the front line. So, for example, the families of the children and teachers who died at Sandy Hook Elementary School decided to go after Remington, the gun manufacturer who made the rifles used in the shooting, and they were determined to fight the law. Remington Arms Company v. Soto, which is the lawsuit they filed, was initially dismissed by a Connecticut court. The Sandy Hook families appealed, and the Connecticut Supreme Court reversed that dismissal and allowed it to go forward. The lawyers for the victims in this case argued that Remington had broken a Connecticut law about unfair trade practices, which was a caveat in the PLCAA's immunity waiver. Remington took it to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2019. This was before Ginsburg's death and Barrett's nomination. The court declined to hear the case and made no written or oral comments about it at all, which meant that the case could go forward. While Remington Arms Company v. Soto never went to trial, in early 2022, Remington settled with the families for $73 million. Guess where that money came from? The insurance companies. The news articles might say Remington settled, but again, people forget where that money comes from. The insurance companies settled. Remington had already filed for bankruptcy. The Sandy Hook families originally wanted something in the range of $250 million, but Remington only had about $73 million in insurance coverage, so the entire limits were paid out on all the policies. And yes, I know insurance is a promise to pay, as one of my mentors always liked to remind me. And I'm not sure what the Sandy Hook family should be entitled to. I look at other settlements I've seen in my career for the deaths of children, and I think, maybe that's not enough. Or maybe it's too much? Or maybe Remington should have bought more coverage. I don't know. But keep in mind, these were policies written at rates that reflected a belief among the insurance companies that manufacturers were immune from liability a.k.a. pretty freaking cheap. So, another caveat. I worked at two of these companies. I didn't write this account, but I remember it. And I have a general idea of what was charged. I can say pretty safely this was a massive loss for the insurance companies. Now, mind you, because it never went to trial officially, 
This makes it a little complicated, but part of the reason the Connecticut Supreme Court allowed the case to go forward was, again, that the lawsuit wasn't really about the manufacturing of the gun, which the law would have rejected in theory, but about the marketing of the gun. And that was a lot grayer. And you can bet there are a lot of other policies out there written at low rates with very nervous underwriters. But also, there are a lot of people within the industry that think this was an anomaly and that their account wouldn't ever be affected. I know how I'd feel, but here we are. There's another case in Gary, Indiana, that's also challenging the law. Again, alleging that several gun manufacturers violated Indiana law. In this case, it's the public nuisance law, not marketing. But it's pretty clear that what the lawyers are after are documents. They're looking for almost 25 years of documents from those gun manufacturers and hoping, most likely, that what's in those documents may reveal more violations they can pursue. That case is still being litigated. Whatever happens with the PLCAA, my bigger concern is actually something that in some ways approaches magical thinking on the part of non-insurance people. In the last few weeks, I've seen several op-ed articles about insurance and guns and what the insurance industry could do to regulate the gun industry, something I find particularly funny given the 2005 PLCAA law that I just talked about. This idea isn't new. It's something that's come up over and over again since the 1990s, as far as I can tell. So on the one hand, we have the government trying to reduce liability for gun manufacturers through the PLCAA, and on the other hand, we have people trying to put the management of firearm safety smack dab onto the insurance industry. If the U.S. can't pass gun legislation, this is seen as an alternative, putting it out into the marketplace and letting us solve the problem. The basic argument is that insurance can somehow make gun ownership safer, provide funding for victims of gun violence, and do all the research to support whatever requirements the industry finds most effective. Oh, and they would make money because they would apply their risk assessments in ways that would allow them to avoid risk. Pundits say that insurance has done this for other industries. They typically throw out car insurance as an example. There is this assumption that insurance companies make suggestions or even demands of their customers to improve safety and those customers always comply. If they don't, maybe those people in businesses can't get insurance at all without it. Or maybe they can't get the insurance coverage they need, or maybe it's just so expensive it means that they are forced to make changes. I would love to explain to these people how the hard market and the soft market works. But even before I get into more detail, I want to make sure the issue is defined. I've read a ton about this in the last few months, and I always come back to the same question. What are these people expecting insurance to do? For example, is the goal to make gun ownership safer, to reduce violence, to reduce crime, to reduce suicide, to compensate victims of gun violence, to reduce the number of guns overall or just certain types of guns, to reduce the number of guns a person owns? It's a lot of questions, and all of them raise major issues. First, what does insurance already do? If you are a homeowner and you have homeowner's insurance, or if you're a renter and have renter's insurance, and you own a gun, you already have some liability coverage. Now, mind you, the main worry for insurance companies providing homeowner's coverage isn't liability because of guns. It's actually the theft of the gun. 
And those insurance companies aren't generally charging more premium unless your guns are worth more than, say, $5,000. As a matter of fact, looking at one major homeowner's insurance company's website, it says that, quote, owning firearms does not affect homeowner insurance premiums, unquote. In terms of liability, what would be covered under a homeowner's policy? Accidental discharge. How often does that happen? Not enough to concern insurers, otherwise they would exclude it or limit it, or maybe they would even ask how many guns you own, but they don't. Now, what if you shoot someone in self-defense in your home? This might be covered, depending on the policy, and I believe also the state you live in. But again, this isn't something that happens very often, or at least not enough to worry insurers. What if you shoot someone intentionally or as part of a criminal act? Nope, that is 100% not covered. It's excluded by the policy. What if you lose your gun or it's stolen and it's used in a crime? That's also not covered by your policy. Now, there has been at least one example of a homeowner's policy paying for injury due to a criminal act. The homeowner's policy for one of the Columbine shooters offered money to victims. But that was an offer to settle, not a court case. And keep in mind, too, that homeowners' limits aren't enormous. It could have been only 100000 or 300000 unless they had chosen to pay for more limits. On the insurance company's part, it was probably less about admitting some kind of liability and more about goodwill. Now, on the other hand, if you are extremely concerned about shooting someone in self-defense outside your home, there are standalone insurance products that can provide that coverage depending, again, on the state. The insurance product will pay your bail or provide some amount of money to pay a civil or criminal defense lawyer and will also pay some amount of money if you're found liable in a civil trial. But in both of these insurance products, there's really no discussion about how a person should store their firearms, what kind of firearms are allowed, if firearms should have some sort of safety devices, where you store your ammunition, what kind of modification of firearms are allowed, and most importantly, how you might obtain insurance coverage if your gun is used by you or someone else in a crime. But there is some insurance coverage for certain things already in the marketplace. A handful of states and cities have tried to implement mandatory insurance for gun owners over the years, and in most cases, they've been unsuccessful. One city government, the city of San Jose, California, as of January 1st, 2023, now requires that all gun owners have liability insurance. You can imagine the uproar, and no surprise, the NRA is already suing. But realistically, based on the wording of the bill, people who own a home and buy homeowner's insurance already have the coverage they need to comply with the law. The same with renters who buy renter's insurance. If they don't have either of these types of insurance, well, let's face it, they're probably not going to go out and get it. There are a couple of new things in the San Jose law. Gun owners are required to own a gun safe, have trigger locks on their guns, and attend gun safety training. Okay, well, so here I struggle to see why the NRA would have an issue with these things, but at the same time, people who haven't already done this probably aren't going to do it. Now, in an interesting twist, San Jose is also requiring that gun owners pay an annual fee of $25 per year, kind of a tax, that would go directly to a gun violence prevention nonprofit program. San Jose has about 1 million residents, and only about an estimated 55,000 of them own guns. 
So assuming that all of them pay the tax, that would be $1.3 million per year. That doesn't seem like a lot of money to me, but I guess at least it's something. Does this law change anything for the insurance industry? No. Unless homeowners insurance companies decide to start asking questions about gun safes and trigger locks and gun safety trainings, but they have no incentive to do so. The claims history for those things just doesn't add up to much of anything. Will the San Jose requirements work to reduce crime and gun violence, the gun safes, the trigger locks, the nonprofit money? Will it reduce suicide? Here's the thing. I don't think we know. Will San Jose requirements reduce the number of guns in San Jose? Yeah, I don't think that seems likely. Will the San Jose requirements or tax provide compensation to victims? Nope. And so you have to ask, what does it do? I mean, politically, it makes some people very happy and others very unhappy. But the fact is that what would reduce gun injuries and deaths, which I'm assuming is something that both sides probably want, isn't something we have concrete and accurate information on. And that is something the NRA has been responsible for. One of the things the NRA has done is prevent money from being spent to study anything related to guns and American citizens on a federal level. In 1972, when the Consumer Product Safety Commission was formed, this is the federal agency that's supposed to research hazards associated with consumer products, for one thing, the legislation that created the agency specifically excluded firearms and ammunition from its oversight. Other government and state agencies, like, for example, the CDC, are pretty much prevented from doing any studies either. The CDC used to do some research, but in 1993, the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control published a report about gun safety that stated that owning a gun resulted in a higher risk of homicide in the home. The NRA immediately lobbied to have the entire agency, the entire National Center for Injury Prevention, shut down. But eventually Congress passed something called the Dickey Amendment, which says, and I quote, quote, none of the funds made available for injury prevention and control at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention may be used to advocate or promote gun control. So the statistics we rely on for even basic facts about guns are pretty skewed. The Department of Health and Human Services got some money and some permission from the Obama administration to conduct some research after Sandy Hook, but that was only about $11 million, just a fraction of what that agency gets to study other health issues. I mean, West Nile got like $134 million. Some states, about 40, report information on gun injuries to the CDC. So some states don't report at all. Some hospitals also report statistics on gunshots, assuming that people come in for treatment. Suicide by gun is also reported to the CDC, again, assuming that it's properly recorded as suicide, sometimes for a whole host of reasons, including religious ones, that doesn't happen. But again, all of these numbers have major issues. It gets messier if you start drilling down. For example, if you want to know statistics on school gun violence, good luck. Wikipedia is your best bet, believe it or not, according to an actuary I know. Police shootings? Ugh, that's messy too. The FBI talked about starting to put together a database in 2014. Your best bet there is actually the news media. The Washington Post started collecting information on police shootings in 2015. 
Those numbers don't help us with some of the more important insurance questions either, like what safety measures prevent suicides, what safety measures prevent gun crimes. So here's the thing. How the heck do we know what works on a large scale? I'm not aware of any large-scale, vigorously tested statistics in the U.S. This is in stark contrast to, say, automobiles. Insurance companies have a ton of information about car safety and how to price insurance for drivers, and that's because of two things. First, it's been around for a long time. Car insurance became mandatory in the 1950s in the U.S., though it had been around in some form since the 1920s. And because a lot of studies were done by federal agencies on how to make cars safer, there was and continues to be a lot of information outside the insurance industry that insurance professionals can use. And in addition, there have been a lot of safety measures taken by the car industry, many of them measures forced on them by the government or by lawsuits. So if the insurance industry is expected to step in and make guns safer, how are insurers supposed to figure out what works? The craziest thing that these pundits have put forth is that insurance should be covering criminal acts with firearms. One article I read said that by requiring insurance companies to cover criminal acts, they would be, quote, motivated to conduct effective background screenings before agreeing to a contract that would cost them millions if they miss something, unquote. No, what would probably happen is that insurance would stop writing in that location. Imagine a situation where every single homeowner's insurer pulled out of a city or state because of a requirement that they cover intentional acts. Imagine a situation where a homeowner's insurance premiums increased a thousandfold to pay for this new mandatory coverage. Liability insurance historically has never covered expected or intended injury. The policy is based on an occurrence that is an accident, not intentional. If you've listened to any of my other episodes, you'll know that changing the definition of occurrence is always a bad idea. And covering criminal acts, in my opinion, defeats the entire purpose of liability insurance. In fact, it may defeat the entire purpose of insurance. But even without coverage for criminal acts, relying on private industry to regulate what is a public issue is going to have unintended consequences. For example, if insurance did research gun safety, they're more likely to focus on areas that reduce claims or make claims more defensible. And reducing claims and reducing gun injuries are not the same thing. I appreciate the position of the people who are pushing this idea that insurance will fix the problem, but it won't. After all this, what's left? I think it goes back to deciding what the question is. And allowing the government to get actual, valid research on the possible answers to those questions. I'm pretty sure that alone is going to be a major problem. I have no idea how to fix it, but I'm also pretty sure that looking to the insurance industry isn't the solution. Ugh, I have to tell you, this was such a hard episode to write. I have a lot of feelings about it, but I also thought it was really important. From the insurance versus history face-off, I'm going to call it a tie for now. I'll be curious to revisit this in a few years and see what's happened. I strongly believe that insurance can do a lot of great things to improve society, but I think the people looking to insurance to solve the issue of guns are missing the big picture. And I worry about what happens if states and governments decide that insurance is the answer. I would certainly prefer if Congress did something, because at that at least means we're working through the democratic process. In 2022, Biden signed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. 
This act doesn't ban anything related to firearms, but gives states money for crisis intervention and mental health programs. There's some wording about asking states nicely but not requiring them to add juvenile records to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. The law also slightly expands the definition of who's considered a gun dealer because gun dealers are required to run background checks. And there's some wording about gun ownership for people convicted of domestic violence, which frankly has some pretty big holes in it. As for Wayne LaPierre, despite a host of recent scandals about using NRA money to fund his lifestyle, he is still effectively head of the NRA. And he's still married. And Tim Mack still hates him. And he and the NRA are still suing anyone or anything that ties to pass any legislation about firearms. The 2005 Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act is also still around, though the Sandy Hook settlement has definitely opened the door for other lawsuits and the Gary case is still outstanding. There's been talk by various Democrats over the years about repealing it, but hey, even Bernie Sanders voted for it back in 2005, so there you go. It's too early to obviously see how things play out in San Jose, but I'll be interested to watch to see how much compliance they have. Just looking online, I saw a lot of very confused San Jose residents who wanted to comply with the law but had no idea how to do so, which is not encouraging. If the people who want to follow the law can't figure out how to do it, then that's a problem, and it's certainly not one that insurance can solve. As for the rest of the issues surrounding insurance's involvement in insuring the firearm industry and firearm owners, it's hard to say. I don't see any insurance company stepping up to create a new product to provide more coverage than's already in the market, unless there's a lot of money in it. And if that's the case, be ready for those unintended consequences. Thanks for listening. Show notes and a list of sources and additional reading suggestions can be found on my website which is linked in the show description on your podcast player. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your preferred platform to be notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. And let other people know about the podcast by spreading the word. Join me over on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and tell me your thoughts about the podcast episode or insurance history in general. I'd love to hear them. Make sure to use the hashtag insurancevshistory so I can find it. My social media is linked in the show description in your podcast player as well, so give me a shout. And remember, be safe, be smart, and read your policy wording.